Hey, we're continuing our study in the book of Matthew. And guess what? We're almost through with Matthew. We're rapidly approaching the crucifixion. This week, we're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper and Jesus celebrating Passover and how we got the Lord's Supper out of the Passover and what we're to remember uh, that he's done for us. He died on the cross, his broken body, his shed blood. We're going to actually go over the meaning of these things pretty much pretty in depth and how there's different views within the church of what Passover or what the Lord's table really is. So we'll go through some of that stuff today. If you would stand as we read the word of God, we're in Matthew chapter 26, verse 17 through 30. The Lord's table, we remember. Now on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to himself, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in this dish will betray me. The son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, you have said it. And, they were, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together here safely, securely, comfortably, and study your word. It's not all places in this world that can do that. Well, we have the privilege of doing that today, and we do not overlook the privilege we have here of meeting corporately together. Thank you that you are in our midst. Holy Spirit, I ask that you teach each one of us something that you want us specifically to hear from this message today. You speak to hearts, Lord. You change the course of lives. You're the life changer. Lord, we ask you to invade each one of our lives and touch us in our area of need. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The theme of Matthew, as you know, is Jesus is the promised king. One day he's coming. We've been studying the Olivet Discourse, and that is now over. And Jesus, last week, we went through his, his plotting, the plotting of the Pharisees to kill Jesus. They hated Jesus. They wanted them eliminated. They didn't want to do it on the Passover, but God had something different in plan. His son would be sacrificed at a specific time, in a specific place, in a specific way. Mary anointed Jesus for burial, and Judas conspires to betray Jesus. In the betrayal, we know from other scriptures that Satan entered into Judas. And then Judas, for 30 pieces of silver, betrayed, conspired to betray Jesus. And I don't want you to to, to let this thing slip by you. Uh, Judas wanted the kingdom, but he didn't want the cross. Jesus want, uh, Judas wanted to reign, but he did not want to serve. 
He wanted to be a sir. He wanted to be a one that was served and not a servant. And his he's just like the people of the world, just like the earth dwellers of the world. Now, what Judas missed was the most important aspect, the most important thing that happened in the history of the world was the death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. He missed that. He missed that. And at the cross, what we want to remember is that there is where Jesus secured the victory over Satan. Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed principalities and powers and triumphed over them at the cross. At the cross. Don't let this, don't let the cross and the significance go blow by you. We know that Jesus died for our sins, but there was also an aspect of the cross where Satan was defeated at the cross and then made it possible for people to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by simply believing in what Jesus did on the cross. I also want you to remember is that Jesus died for every single sin that humanity ever committed from the most egregious that you can think of. Think of Hamas and egregious. Think of murder. Think of baby killing. Think of abortions. Think of theft. But also think of the, what we consider smaller sins, but are still sins in the eyes of God. You know, lust, jealousy, vanity, greed, gossip, gluttony. I mean, we all have it, folks. We all have the sin disease. We need a Savior. Every single one of us needs a Savior. We're all in the same boat. Every sin, little sin, big sin, every sin. Jesus took all of our sins. If there was one sin that he didn't die for, folks, we would have no hope. He died for them all. The cross looked like a giant defeat. A giant defeat. Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. Isaiah chapter 52, 14 says this. Listen to these words. Many were amazed when they saw him. Speaking of Jesus crucified, his face was so disfigured that he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. Beaten beyond recognition. That was Jesus. Judas did not live to see the, see the, see the cross. Excuse me. Jesus, Judas did not live to see the resurrection. Judas did not live to see something. I forgot what it was. What did Judas miss? He missed the resurrection. Judas wanted nothing to do with the crucified Jesus, but he missed the resurrection. He did not live to see the resurrection. He hung himself in Matthew 27, 3 through 5. He was remorseful. Now listen to this word. He was remorseful for what he did. He took the three, 30 pieces of silver. He threw them down into the potter's field, and then he hung himself. And it says this. He was remorseful. The word is metamelomai doesn't mean anything to you, but listen to what the word says. He had remorse with regret, with no change of heart. He did not repent. How often do people have remorse for what they have, what they've done, regret for what they've done, but no real genuine repentance? This was a situation with Judas. Contrast that with true repentance, metanoia. It means to repent with regret accompanied by a true change of heart. That is what happened to us when we believed in Jesus. We repented. We realized we turned from where we were. We realized who Jesus was and we turned to him in faith. This week we remember what Jesus did for us. Folks, it's the greatest act of love in the history of the world. 
This is like agape love on steroids. I mean, this is Jesus, God leaving heaven to become one of us, to die for us in a despicable way on the cross. So, I want you to, so this week we're going to remember the Lord's table, and the Lord's table is all about remembrance. Remembrance. This do in remembrance of me. I want you to think about something. As time passes, people tend to forget. I want to suggest to you today that many, many are trying to forget the Holocaust. They're trying to forget Auschwitz. Some of these atrocities that have been perpetrated in war, like the Bataan Death March, where the Japanese slaughtered all these soldiers. People are forgetting this. Communism, when it came to popularity, when it came to power in Russia and in China, where literally hundreds of thousands of people were slaughtered, murdered by the communist regime. That has been forgotten as Marxist professors in universities today extol the benefits of Marxism and young people are just following lockstep with their professors. You have many that you know of, family members that have gone woke, have bought into Marxist ideologies. Folks, they've been indoctrinated, they've been brainwashed by the kingdom of darkness. That is what has happened to them. We folks are the remembering ones. God has given us something called feast days that the Jews have to remember, and we have two ordinances to remember, baptism and communion. Both are pictures of things that God wants us to remember. So we folks, as humans, we as Christians, we want to be the remembering ones. We will not forget what Jesus did for us. That's what the Lord's table is all about. That's what it is all about. We will remember the price he paid. The Lord's table helps us to remember, to remember. So verse 17 through 19, Jesus is going to secure the Passover place, and it's going to be done secretly. Watch what he does. Now, on the first day of the week, first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So we're talking about Passover, but they're talking about unleavened bread. You must realize that Unleavened bread and Passover at the same time in the same week, Passover being first, unleavened bread, and then Jesus rose on first fruits, all of those being in that one week period of time. Now, what is Passover? Passover is a time to remember, a feast to remember. What are they remembering? They're remembering when God freed the Jewish people from Egyptian bondage. Remember, they were in Egypt for 400 years, 400 plus years. 430 years. It was, it was a long period of time. So they're in Egypt. Now I want you to remember that Egypt is always a picture of the world and Pharaoh who had control of them is always a picture of Satan. So you must remember that. So what happened is a lamb had without spot or blemish would be sacrificed for an individual home. Moses was told exactly what to do for the Passover. Sacrifice a lamb. Put the blood on the lentil in the doorpost. A lamb without blemish was sacrificed. When the destroying angel saw the blood, he would pass over that house, not kill the people in that house, and they would be safe. They would be safe. 
Folks, the only way that a person can be safe today, safe from eternal damnation today, is have the blood of Messiah. See, that lamb that was sacrificed is a picture of a future Messiah. And the lamb of Messiah's blood applied to your life. That's the only way that you're safe. The only way you're safe. Jesus' sacrifice was made to everyone. It has to be appropriated individually. Now listen to this. No blood, no safety. The firstborn in Egypt of everything, human and animal, would die if there was no blood. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12 through 14 says this. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. That key night when the destroying angel is going through. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah, the real God. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. When I see the blood, watch the personal aspect of this. God saying, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, you need to know a little bit of prelude to this, this event. What happened here? At the beginning, when God met Moses in Exodus chapter 4, he says these words. God told Moses to tell Pharaoh to let the firstborn of Israel go. If not, I will kill your firstborn. Now, the scripture is this, Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh. Now, can you imagine Moses? He's not wanting to do this. He's trying to get out of this whole thing. He does not want to go to Pharaoh, but he's been given an instruction by God. There's been a burning bush experience. He is confronted by God, and now he has to go do this. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I will say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And you know what God does? He starts to, he starts to get Pharaoh's attention. And he sends 10 plagues on the nation of Israel. Blood, frogs, lice, flies, locusts, livestock, hail, boils, darkness. And then the death angel comes. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He hardens his own heart at first. And then as he's given over to his sin, God hardens his heart towards the end of those. Finally, the death angel comes and, is, and the firstborn is dead. Now Pharaoh will let the people go. But then God does something interesting. He hardens Pharaoh's heart one more time and instigates Pharaoh to chase the children of Israel. And he gets them at the Red Sea. And the Red Sea is there, and, Pharaoh, and Moses is panicking. How are we going to get away from this army that's now pursuing us? And God says, strike the water, and it'll separate. And up these mountains of water. Can you imagine these mountains of water separate? And the story goes that they pass through on dry land. And here comes Pharaoh in his hubris, in his arrogance, wanting to kill the people of Israel, he sees, now, now tell me, if you saw this Red Sea separate, you know, I don't know how tall the water was. Wouldn't you take a pause? Oh, no, not Pharaoh. He's going straight into it. And then God says, boom, and all the water comes down, and Pharaoh 
is killed. A significant thing happened there. When Pharaoh died, Pharaoh lost legal custody to the nation of Israel. It required a death for legal custody to be broken. Washed up on the shore, you can only imagine, with the artifacts, the weapons, the stuff that made them ready to go into the promised land of weapons and other things, ready to go. Now, the question is this. Well, let me mention this. Joseph's family, in Exodus chapter 1, Joseph saved Jacob and his family from starvation, from the famine. They came and went into the land of Egypt, and they prospered for those first few years until another pharaoh came, and they became uh, rigorous and, and abusive to the, to the Jewish people. But within Israel, 70 people went in, and 2 million plus came out of Israel. They went in not a nation, and they came out a full nation. They came out of people under the control of Pharaoh. Pharaoh dies, and now they're the people of God going into the wilderness. That's the picture. Now, must Christians celebrate Passover today? There are a lot of people that are getting into the Messianic Christian movement and believe that you should celebrate Passover today. It's an option. If you want to celebrate it, that's fine. That's terrific. All the feasts have Messiah embedded in the feast, but it's not a requirement. It's not a requirement. It's a good way to remember, but it's not a requirement. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, tells us, Jesus is our Passover sacrifice. Therefore, purge out the old leaven. Now, you're good Bible students. You know that leaven is a picture of sin. That's right. Jesus took all of our sin, that you may be a new lump born again, since you are true, since you Truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. He died for us to make us unleavened, sinless in the eyes of God. That's justification. The perfect Lamb of God would take away the sins of the world, as John said, look, oh, there he is, Messiah, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in John 1.29. Folks, the Lord's table is a time to remember the Passover sacrifice of Jesus in our place. God wants us to remember. Now the disciples knew that Jesus would be celebrating the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? They asked. Now you need to know that three times a year there are three mandatory feast days for the nation of Israel that every male must attend if possible. Okay, that's Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. He was going to get there. Jesus fulfilled it. Now, this is literally hours before Jesus dying. What happens, the next thing we're going to see next week is Gethsemane, where Jesus' heart is being poured out. If there's any other way, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Any other way. He knows what is coming. He knows he's going to take the sins of the world. He knows what the crushingness that's going to be placed upon him. But he's not curled up on a ball in worry. He's not throwing up, you know, concerned about the next day. He's going to enjoy the Passover with his people. In Luke twenty-two fifteen, he says this, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Earnestly. Now, you need to know that Passover was a huge, huge 
huge event in Israel. I think most of you know that, but let me say this. John MacArthur helps us with this. He says, typical Passover, 250,000 lambs were sacrificed. The law taught that no fewer than 10 and no more than 20 people would eat one lamb. Therefore, on this Passover, were perhaps as many as 2 million people in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover at the time Jesus was sacrificed for the sins of the world. Now, notice this. Notice this, or, or think about this. When the lamb was sacrificed, there had to be there, just 250,000 of these things being sacrificed. The throat is slit. The blood is collected. It is collected in a cup. The cup is then passed from one priest to another priest to another priest, and then that cup is jerked or thrown on the altar. That's 250,000 of these things. Boom, 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 boom. What happened was, is the blood congealed up to the priest's knees. From there, it would flow down into the Kidron Valley. Why am I mentioning this? Because the Passover was bloody. Jesus, our Passover lamb, was a bloody mess on the cross. It's a picture of what happened to Messiah on the cross. Now, why all the secrecy? Go into the city and find a certain man. An unknown man. And Mark, it says, even, even more delineates this man. He'll be carrying a pitcher on his shoulder. And you find the guy that's carrying the pitcher on the shoulder, and then you follow that guy to the house. And that's where we'll celebrate the Passover. Now, why the secrecy? This is a supposition. But maybe it was because Jesus didn't want Judas to know the place until the last second. He was not going to be betrayed before the appointed time. The Last Supper was planned out perfectly. It would be the last time Jesus would celebrate with these men that he poured into for three and a half years. Now, in the middle of the Seder, in the middle of the Supper, Jesus says something amazing. Watch what he says. Jesus announces there's a traitor in their midst. 20 and 22. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve, now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He says it to the whole group. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. He who dipped his hand in the dish will betray me. Jesus announces his betrayer. Now, I want you to think about this. The usual table, the Passover table that you see, is an elongated table. Jesus, with his flowing hair and his blue eyes, is usually in the middle of the table. This is the Renaissance picture. That's not Jesus, okay? This is a horseshoe-type table. This, this. Jesus is on the end. So I have a picture here of this Passover Seder. This is probably Peter with the sword guarding the door for safety. This is John on Jesus' right shoulder, as it says in the book of John. And then... Judas is in the, in, the, in the spot of favor on the left shoulder, says in Matthew, later on in Matthew. So he's on the left shoulder. He's in a place of favor and position. No one in the group suspects Judas. The point of favor. He had the purse, a point of responsibility. Judas and Jesus ate out of the same bowl. They shared the same little bowl together. Okay, this is an important point. 
They were all next to one another, sharing with one another. But he shares with Judas exclusively. So at the right place, at the right time, Jesus is with his disciples. And in the middle of the meal, Jesus says, makes the astounding statement, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, think about you being there three and a half years with Jesus. And all of a sudden, he says, one of you guys is going to be the one that betrays me. You're going to turn me in. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? And then the question is, who would betray our beloved Lord? It had to go through the group. Who? Who? Is it going to be me, Lord? Who? Who? And in verse 23 through 25, the betrayer is revealed. He answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? Is it I? And he said to him, you have said. Pointed out right there. Interestingly, he who dipped his hand with me, and I'm thinking this may be true or may not be true. I don't know that he said this to the whole group, or maybe this was just loud enough for Judas to hear. He who dipped his hand with me, he will be the one that betrays me. And notice what Judas says. Rabbi, is it I? He does not say Lord. He does not say Master. He does not say Messiah. He doesn't say precious Jesus, is it I? He says Rabbi, teacher, teacher. Is it I? He did not know the master. Did not know the master. The surge that must have went through Judas. Exposed. Right in front of Jesus. Jesus said, you're the man. You're the man. In Psalm 41.9. Jesus quotes this. In, in John 13.18. He quotes this psalm. Even my close friend whom I trusted. Who ate my bread. Has lifted his heel against me. John gives us more insight in John chapter 13, 23 through 30, which we don't have time to go through now. I'll give you the short version. Adds this. It mentions that Jesus dipped the sop or dipped the bread and shared it with Judas, an act of friendship, an act of friendship. Judas was given one more chance, his last chance to repent Judas was confirmed in his decision to betray Jesus, given over to evil. After his refusal to repent, Jesus, right to the last second, offering him, just like he does so many people today, right to the last second, on your deathbed, offering you life. And so many people say, no, no, I'm a good person. I'll, I'll take my chances. After his refusal to repent, Satan entered Judas. It tells us in John chapter 13, and Jesus dismissed him from the group. He gives him an order. What you do, do quickly. And he released the Satan-possessed Judas from the group. Go do what you have to do. He released him to the power of darkness into the darkness of night. And off went Judas. Jesus says these words, Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Amazing. Amazing. 
Judas never partook of the Lord's table. He never heard this do in remembrance of me. It wasn't for him. It wasn't for him. Now the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, 26 through 30. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, the Lord's table. Now, for your edification, for your learning, there are four views of the Lord's Supper. One view is the Catholic view, the Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, have this view of transubstantiation. This is not in the notes, so you just have to listen to me, okay? It got too long, so I didn't want to keep putting it down. Transubstantiation is this, to change from one substance to another. That the, that the, that the bread is actually the body, and the cup or the wine is actually the blood. These are physical body and blood of Christ. That's what they believe. There's a problem with that in that you're crucifying Jesus every week when you partake of these elements, thinking it's the body and blood of Christ. There's a problem with that. The other view is consubstantiation. Now listen to this one. This is Luther, who was a Catholic priest who kind of tweaks transubstantiation and makes it consubstantiation. He says this. Since he can't be exactly like the Catholics, he's got all, something almost there. The body and blood of Christ are present in, with, under the elements. Christ is literally present, though not physically present. That's the Lutheran view. Then there's the spiritual presence view. These are the Presbyterians, the Calvinists, the Reformed people have this view. The spiritual presence of Christ is in the elements. And, and as in the former view, God ministers grace to the communicant. Now, what you want to understand from that is a lot of people believe Catholics and many people believe that when you take communion, your sins are taken away. Catholics view their venial sins, their kind of minor sins are taken away. And you take communion and it kind of prevents you or protects you from committing egregious, horrific sins. Okay? Then there's the memorial view. This is my body broken for you. It's a picture. It's a metaphor. It's a picture of what's going on. Advocates of this view would be the Baptists, the Bible churches, the Methodists, the Pentecostals, the Wesleyans, and of course, Calvary Chapel. All Christians believe that communion is an essential part of their Christian experience. It's not just something cursory. It's not just an add-on. It's just, not a, uh, just a, a thing that we do just to kind of go through a religious thing. It is a time when we deeply remember what Jesus has done for us. My view is it's a memorial. It's a remembrance. And I do believe that we who partake of it experience the favor of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God, the goodness of God. Communion is important. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread. He blessed and broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body. Now, notice the sequence of events. First of all, he blessed the bread. That's why we pray over it before we partake of the elements. He prayed over the bread. When he gave thanks, he broke it. 
In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, we see this. The bread was unleavened. Remember, leaven is a picture of sin. Unleavened bre bread is a picture of the sinless Christ who was sacrificed for us on the cross. Sinless. When we have matzah, that is what they broke. Matzah is pierced and striped. It reminds us of the broken body of Christ. Before we got the COVID and had to go to whatever this is, we had matzah that we could all grab a piece of, but now we don't do that because we don't want to touch something that somebody else has touched. But that matzah was pierced and striped. It's a picture of Jesus' broken body. It's pierced and striped. So, then he had given thanks. He takes the cup. For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Oh, excuse me. The bread was broken. I, I, last, I thought, ah, Maritza got me. Yes, the bread was broken, a picture of Jesus' broken body. Again, that's matzah, pierced and striped. And then he takes the cup, which is the new covenant in my blood, done for the remission of sins. Jesus gave thanks, and then he took the cup. Again, we pray before the cup. The cup represents his blood of the new covenant. Now, what you must remember is the new covenant, we see mainly, we see this in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34, discusses the new covenant in depth. There are other verses in the Old Testament that mention the new covenant. That's the main one, if you wanted to know about it. In it, it says, I will be their God and they shall be my people, speaking to the nation of Israel. He's saying that at the end of the tribulation period, the new covenant, when all of Israel believes, the one-third remnant that believes, they will be part of the new covenant. New covenant. God saves a third of Israel in Zechariah 13.8. Now, that's for Israel. All the covenants are for Israel. The church does not have a covenant. We are Benefit, benefactors of the covenant because we are grafted into Israel, not because we're the church, but because we're grafted in and what Jesus has done for us. So how is the church involved? Romans eleven seventeen, we're grafted in. And Arnold Fruchtenbaum says this, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, the Gentiles are fellow heirs with Israel. When Messiah died, the middle wall of partition, that's the law, was torn down. Now the Gentiles are in Messiah, enjoy the blessings of unconditional covenants that have been given to Israel. We have been grafted in. We enjoy the covenantal promises that have been given to Israel. This is important. The Gentile believers become partakers, benefiters of the new covenant, not takeovers of the new covenant. See, there's a, something called today replacement theology where the church has replaced Israel and all the covenantal promises that were given to Israel have been transformed to the church. That's not so. God has made unconditional covenants with Israel that must be fulfilled and they will be fulfilled in the millennial reign of Christ. We must remember that replacement theology, which most of the church believes in. That's why so many people in the church today are pro-Palestine, that Israel's the problem. They have no real right to that land. They have no real place of favor with God. Just get them out of the way and everything will be okay. That is wrong. Replacement theology is wrong. Wrong. So, 
Jesus' blood sacrifice results in the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins. Folks, it's the only way that a human being is made right in the eyes of God by accepting the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Our sins are forgiven. We are acceptable before God. And this is a huge thing that most people do not know or do not process. God's wrath is removed. Every human is under the wrath of God unless they're rescued from the kingdom of darkness, the blood applied to their lives, and they're placed into the kingdom of light where they are safe. It's the only place that you're safe. Romans 5, 9, having been justified, remember justification, declared righteous because of Jesus' sacrifice for the person who believes. The, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That's orge. That is real wrath of God. Folks, if the blood isn't applied, the death angel will come to you and you will be separated from God forever. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The wrath of God will be poured out on those who reject his son. That's the truth. So when we believe, we go from enemies of God to friends of God because of the blood of God being applied on the doorpost of our lives. Does everybody get a picture of that? Does everybody understand that one? Because that's an important concept. The sacrifice. Then Jesus says another statement that's Kind of must have been stunning to them. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the marriage ceremony that will take place between the bride of Christ, us, and the bridegroom, Jesus, in heaven, in father's house. At the end of the last supper, in verse 30, they went out and they sung a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. It was a joyous remembrance. That's why we close with a hymn. I close with a, uh, something celebratory. Thanking God for what he has done. Now what we're going to see, the next stop for Jesus will be Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Where he says, Oh my Father, if it is possible, if there is any other way that this thing can be accomplished, the salvation of humanity. If there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will, Father. Folks, that's a message for us. Jesus finished his mission. It was not an easy mission to die for the sins of the world, to be crushed by his Father, as it says in Isaiah. All the sins of the world were poured out on Jesus. It was not an easy mission, but he finished it. That's a message for us, folks. We are to finish our mission. Finish our mission. Not my will, but your will, Father. Whatever it is as I go down this road, not my will, your will be done. Your will be done. Some closing thoughts about what we remember. From Jesus' last Passover meal came the Lord's Supper, which we partake of today. The Lord's Supper, now listen, does not have to be served by a priest, does not have to be served by a pastor, you can do it individually. You can do it any time. It doesn't have to be in some sanctioned place. Okay? This is a memorial. The Lord's Supper can be taken in a group or individual. The Lord's Supper must be taken, however, with self-examination. 
You are to examine your life. And we say this scripture every time we do communion. You're going to hear it again in a few minutes when we do communion. The leaven must be taken out. We must become before God clean. How do we do that? We confess our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's just that simple. A matter of confession. We examine ourselves. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29. So then, whoever, he gives the warning. This is the warning scripture. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That's an egregious sin. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without recognizing the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment to themselves. It goes on to say, this, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep or have died because they've inappropriately approached the Lord's table. So that's a huge warning, huge warning. So no matter how one views the Lord's Supper, each view must recognize, I don't care what you're doing with all these other views, it is a memorial. This do in remembrance of me. We must remember when we partake, this is pleasing to God. And I believe there's an element of grace and favor that we get when we do this in a proper way. The Lord's Supper is a time when the bride remembers what the bridegroom has done. The communion service, the cup, the bread, the symbolism, the importance of it. Don't overlook it. Jesus' death was once for all. Now, you've heard me talking here. There's a tendency to drift. Come back for just a moment. Come back for just a moment. Wherever you were, come back for just a moment. Jesus' death was once for all. Not repeated over and over. Once for all. Romans 6.10 for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Hebrews 9.28, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. He's not re-crucified every week in the table. He's not. That is not a proper view. The Passover involves four cups at the time of Jesus. Now, I have a picture here of these four cups. This is from Exodus. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Exodus 6, 6. I will rescue you from your slavery. I will redeem you. And notice how you're redeemed. With an outstretched arm. With mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my peop own people. And I will be your God. So we're going to go through these cups. Hear this. The first cup that they would partake of at the Passover Seder was the cup of sanctification. I will bring you out. Now, this is the, what he's saying to the Jewish people at, at Passover. This, this, is, they're, they're, this is what they're viewing. This is what they're doing every Passover. This is applied to Messiah. This is applied to our lives that Jesus says, takes us out. I will bring you out of bondage. I will separate you to myself. I will separate you. That's sanctification, to be separated. Separated. The second cup is the cup of rescue. I will rid you of your bondage. God acting to save one from danger or imprisonment 
to remove one from legal custody by force. That's what happened at the cross. Legal custody broken. The third cup, the cup of redemption. That's the communion cup. I will redeem you. I will pay the ransom price for you. I will free you from Satan's kingdom and control. Outstretched arm. Satan's legal custody was broken at the cross when the redemption price was paid. Christ's life was shed, broken, given for us. And remember on the cross, the sixth cry from the cross, Jesus said, Tetelestai, Tetelestai, it is finished. The redemption price is paid in full. Why is that important? Because many people today in Christendom believe the redemptive price wasn't paid there. That Jesus went to hell, fought with the devil in hell, was victorious over the devil in hell, and that is a lie. That is not true. The redemptive price was paid on the cross. And if you come to our home group tonight, I'll tell you exactly where we go with those verses, okay? Exactly. That's not what happened. Every believer has been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, Satan's clutches, and placed in the kingdom of light. And you need to know this as we are getting into more demonic stuff that's happening around us. Satan has no legal right to you. When you get harassed by the demonic realm, your thinking starts to get stinking, okay? You have a right to say, be gone from me in the name of Jesus. You have no right here. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm from his kingdom out in the name of Jesus. He cannot stay in your presence. Folks, this is the communion cup we partake of today. This do in remembrance of me. The fourth cup is what you're looking forward to. That's the cup of acceptance. I will take you. God acting to accept one as the bridegroom does his bride. Jesus would not drink of this cup again until his bride is in the kingdom with him. He's waiting for us to drink this cup with him. This is intimacy, folks. This is intimacy. The marriage was consummated, made complete in the Father's house. Now, as we close here, these last few seconds, I want you to remember this. Let us focus on the third cup, the cup of redemption, the communion cup that you're going to partake of today. We remember that we are the bride of Christ. Communion is for the bride. It is not for everybody. If you have not been born again, if you are not in the family of God, this is not for you. If you have been, this is a special, special time with your, with your bridegroom. And then secondly, we remember our bridegroom, what he has done. He's died for us. He died for us. Jesus' broken body and shed blood was for you. Was for you. Thirdly, we remember our bridegroom will come unannounced. I think we should remember this every communion service. We're bridesmaids. We're, we're not the bridesmaids, but the picture is the 10 bridesmaids, and they're looking, they're watching and being ready. We want to watch and be ready. We want to watch and be ready for him to come back. And, and then we remember to be loyal to our bridegroom. I think you can add that. Those, those bridesmaids, those, those, that, that bride had to be loyal while that, son, while that bridegroom was away at Father's house, adding on to Father's house, she demonstrated her fidelity 
while he was away. And we are to do that. We don't tinker with the other gods. We don't mess with the things of this world. We don't go to internet sites. We don't watch movies. We don't give ourselves over to the gods of this age. We stay separate, loyal to him until he comes back for us. And I'll say this, in this season of chaos that we are living in today, and folks, it's not going to get less chaotic. I hope you understand that. It is not going to get less chaotic. There may be seasons where it goes down, but folks, this is crescendoing. This is crescendoing. There's a moment coming ahead of us. In this season of chaos, it's good to remember that Jesus is coming for us. The King, the King, the King is indeed coming. He is coming to rescue us. It's a rescue mission. He's coming to take us. And I tell you, at that time, all will be well. Whatever you're going through right now, doesn't matter what it is you're going through right now, there's nothing that the rapture will not cure. Period. Today, folks, we remember what our Lord has done. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we have heard your word today. And just maybe we understand the communion service a little bit better. And now as we prepare to partake of the communion, Lord, may our hearts be united with your heart, our spirits with your spirit, our soul with your soul, every part of our being united with you. Thank you for this time together to celebrate the Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen.